Politics Considered, the show in which we discuss some things political. I'm your host, Bill Gallagher. On today's show, we will discuss how candidates are chosen through the electoral process and some alternatives to the winner-take-all, first-past-the-post system that predominates U.S. elections. I'm thrilled to have a very special guest with me today. Ms. Rachel Hutchinson is Senior Policy Analyst and Researcher with Fair Vote, a prominent national voting reform organization in the United States. Prior to joining Fair Vote, she worked at Democrats Abroad and was a fellow at the Institute for Political Innovation. In these roles, she worked on electoral reform. She also has worked in congressional campaigns and has degrees in sociology and political science, something we both have in common. (laughs) So welcome to the podcast, Ms. Hutchinson. Thank you. I'm excited to be here and feel free to call me Rachel. Okay, Rachel. So how's the way? Are you in Maryland? Uh, I'm actually in Chicago. So Fairvote's based in D.C., but um, I'm fully remote here in Chicago. Oh, okay. So we're the weather. We both are fine with weather then. Um, so I mentioned your experiences. Do you have anything to add regarding your background and research interests? Sure. So like you mentioned, I started my career in campaigns um, and I thought I could make good change in politics by getting good candidates elected. But as I learned more about how American politics really works, I realized that well-intended candidates or legislators can't do good work in a broken system, one where legislators aren't accountable to majorities, where certain political and demographic groups are underrepresented or excluded. So what we really need to instill accountability are systems that facilitate fair representation and outcomes, uh, genuine and better choices. So that realization is what brought me to the election reform movement. Okay, yeah, the the you can get the best candidates in the world, but there's so many structural issues that we'll talk about later that sort of hinder a good democracy. So before we get into the types of voting and proposed reforms, I just want to briefly lay out for the benefit of my audience. I have an international audience. Um, first past the post. First past the post. It's as simple as it sounds. The first candidate past the finish line or the post wins. In theory, a candidate could be elected with a few votes. If, there, if it's a crowded field, we've seen in crowded races, extremists and sometimes dangerous candidates win a small percentage of the vote, even though only about a third of the world's countries use first past the post. Roughly 70 percent of the world's population lives under first past the post, largely because of the large population of the U.S. and India that use it. And those other two thirds, um, those other countries use a variety of systems, including proportional representation, alternative vote, and we'll be talking about this. I should note that in the United States, first past the post is usually referred to as winner take all. And in most states, candidates can win with just a plurality. So sorry for all that, Rachel. Anything to add to that? Yeah, uh, these first past the post choose one elections have a lot of problems. I'd say, like you said, they deprive voters of meaningful choices, create increasingly toxic campaign cycles, advance candidates who really lack broad support, like you said. So really leave us voters feeling like our voices are not heard Uh, to speak to, you know, broader problems within that U.S. political system. 
we have lots of uncompetitive districts. Uh, gerrymandering has served to create really safely partisan districts. So out of the 435 House elections we had in 2022, there were only 36 that were actually competitive. So that's roughly wow. 8% of elections. Wow. This means, yeah, those elections are essentially decided by the Republican and Democrat primaries. The problem is when these primaries are crowded, someone can win with a very, very low percent, like you said, and that person doesn't necessarily represent the party well. So in 2022, 120 congressional and statewide candidates won their primaries with less than 50 percent of the vote. So we have a fraction of a fraction of the electorate making decisions for all of us because of this first past the post setup. And fundamentally, I think we can do a lot better. People aren't feeling represented because of this. They don't always feel like they like the choices on their ballot as a result. They don't feel that voting honestly is always going to get them the best outcome. So I think because of the system that we've been putting up with for so long, people are ready to feel good about the choices on their ballot. They're ready to be represented demographically, ready for leaders accountable to the majority of us. And just like a, a political culture that's a lot less negative and more focused on consensus building. Yeah, and as you were talking, I was just thinking that not only in these 50-50 races can the other half, their, their choices, they don't get their choice, but they can often really despise the other, which is you know part of this toxic partisanship. So you can have half the electorate, or in these plurality, you know two thirds of the electorate that just feels very disenfranchised. There are some states that require majority winners. Um, Ten states have primary runoff elections. Two states have general election runoffs, and, and Georgia is one, and they have this runoff in the general election. So if a candidate doesn't receive 50 plus one, it goes to runoff. We saw that last year with Senator Raphael Warnock and challenger Herschel Walker. Generally, in these situations, there's a libertarian that has three or four percent of the vote. And then in the runoff, it's just about getting your people back out. Uh, Louisiana um, has a jungle or a Cajun primary. It's a bit interesting. Um, it's not really a primary. It's just that everybody runs. And if nobody gets 50 plus one, the top two go to a runoff. And it it can be it's regardless of party. So it's often two Republicans in Louisiana. So I know that was a lot, but I want to lay that out. Did I get anything wrong or do you have anything to add to that? No, that's right. And I'd add, you know, majoritarianism is the right idea, but runoffs are not the best way to go about achieving it either. They tend to be really expensive and really low turnout. So to give an example, in 2013, New York City spent $13 million to have a runoff election for their public advocate and turnout declined by 60%. So it had a smaller, less representative group of voters participating in the decisive round. These primary runoff elections that you mentioned have a median of a 40% decline in turnout. So in these races, sometimes the winner gets even less votes than they did in the first round. And then this runoff period just makes for weeks and weeks of negative campaigning. In the Georgia 2020 Senate runoff, the candidates spent $500 million on ads during the runoff period. And not only expensive for the candidates, but for the state too. In that Georgia race, it cost the state another $75 million to hold the runoff election. So uh, there's a better way to achieve majorities, which I'm sure we'll get to. <laughs> Yeah. And when and when these elections happen, it is the local. My understanding is the local uh, county or whatever that has to foot the bill usually. Right. Yep. That's right. OK. 
So now we, I want to talk about rank choice voting. Um, as is, it, this is how it's referred in, to in the United States. And, and I will just say I'm a big fan. Um, my understanding is that it has been around since the mid-1800s. Can you just provide us a broad overview of how it works and tell us a little bit about its use and how it's grown in the United States? Yeah. So ranked choice voting works like this. Voters can get to the ballot box and they get to rank the candidates in order of preference if they want to, instead of just choosing one. And if one candidate has a majority of first choice support, that candidate's the winner. If not, it works like an instant runoff. So candidates are eliminated successively. And if your first choice performs poorly and gets eliminated, your vote can count towards your next choice. And that repeats until one candidate does have a majority of support. So as a result, more voters get to participate in that decision between frontrunners and winners are accountable to the majority of their voters. Uh, like you said, it's been used for 100 years in other countries like Australia and Northern Ireland, uh, but it's really the fastest growing nonpartisan voting reform in the U.S. right now. It's used in 51 cities, counties, and states, which is a home to over 13 million voters. Some places of note include Maine, Alaska, New York City, San Francisco, uh, Minneapolis, Salt Lake City. Military and overseas voters are casting ring choice ballots in federal runoff elections in six different states. And notably, all of this is up from about 10 cities using ring choice voting in 2016. And we have lots more to come. So there's three major Michigan cities are voting on whether they'd like to start using ring choice this November. Alaska and Maine are going to be using it for presidential elections as well next year. And Oregon and Nevada are going to vote on whether they'd like to adopt it, too, in 2024. Uh, so an exciting time for the ranked choice voting movement. Yeah. When I tell my students that um, in Louisiana it's used for the military, a lot of them are surprised. But a lot of that is logistics. It would take a lot of time to send things back and forth and have multiple rounds. That makes That's why they do it, right? Exactly. Okay. I just want to ask you about some problems that you alluded to in today's politics that um, ranked choice voting can solve. But I just have to mention the spoiler effect because, you know, I see this as a major problem. It's a reason. It, it, I think it's a main reason why we don't have multiple parties in the United States, which, you know, when I talk to people, students and others, multiple parties seem very popular. There seems to be this agreement, however, among experts that Ralph Nader, was a spoiler in 2000. And had he not been in the race, Al Gore would likely be president instead of George Bush. Gore got more votes than Bush and everything came down to Florida. I was actually in Florida. It was kind of a crazy time. They were counting votes. And when they were still counting votes, when the Supreme Court stopped the counting, uh, Bush had 537 more votes. And so Ralph Nader actually got over 97,000 votes in Florida. So I think I could make the case for the spoiler effect there because he was liberal and I'm confident that Nader voters would have more likely voted for Gore. And I think many Republicans are convinced that third party candidate Ross Perot allowed President Clinton to win with just a plurality and that Perot was a spoiler. Clinton got 43 percent of the vote. Bush got 37, pro 19, which 19% is a lot for a third party. You know, and so there was a lot of argument about that. Um, it's a little less clear than the Nader situation, but I, I do think that uh, pro was a big factor there. The issue, though, is that in this election, <laughs> um, you know, there's some third party candidates running, but uh, political elites in both major parties, the chattering class, and a lot of us, including me, just feel like this election is existential. 
And I think both sides kind of feel that. Uh, and it's just too risky to vote for a spoiler. So, and that's my position, even though I really would like to see multiple parties, just too much is, is at stake. So how could ranked choice voting deal with a spoiler effect? Yeah, so ranked choice voting essentially eliminates the spoiler effect. So with ranked choice, we can be confident that we're electing the right most preferred winner, regardless of who is actually running in the race. So third party, independent, diverse startup candidates would feel like they can run and people would feel like they can vote for those candidates without these unintended consequences you spoke of. And this differs from first past the post, like you were saying, where voters are forced to be strategic instead of being honest. They have to make this extra calculus at the ballot of going over questions in their mind, like what if my favorite candidate isn't a front runner? Would my vote be wasted on them? Would I be spoiling the race for a more realistic second choice? And by voting for my favorite, am I helping my least favorite win? Uh, so to give another example of a recent presidential election, if I was a Jill Stein supporter uh, in 2016, I'd be told, don't vote for Jill Stein because you're going to be siphoning votes away from Hillary Clinton and helping Trump win. And so as a result, like you said, that's why we don't see so many third party and independent candidates because they're being accused of playing spoiler and potential startup candidates, whether it's in the primary or the general, are just told, wait your turn. Whereas with ranked choice voting, you can vote for your favorite candidate first. And if that candidate doesn't have a chance to win, your vote just simply counts towards your next choice. So voters don't feel compelled as much to choose between what we often perceive as the lesser of two evils. So I want to stick with Jill Stein because I, I feel like we need for the audience to try to lay out the specificity and logistics of this a little bit more. So if I were a Jill Stein, and I, was Jill Stein, a uh, was she a Green Party? Um, I can't yeah, remember. Yeah, that's right. Green Party. Green Party. Okay. So if I was a Jill Stein voter and, you know, maybe I'm her brother and of course I want to vote for her, but I really don't want Trump to get elected. I'd kind of like Clinton to get elected. So what would happen if I voted, if somebody voted for Jill Stein and put Trump last? Sure. So what would happen is you rank Stein first. Presumably Clinton would be your second choice if you're a Stein supporter and then Trump third um, if those are the three you're ranking. And assuming Jill Stein is the first to get eliminated out of those three because she's the poorest polling candidate, then your vote gets to count towards Hillary Clinton in the decisive contest between Clinton and Trump. So it just means that you can truly vote support for your favorite candidate and we can actually see the genuine who actually has support because people feel like they can vote honestly. But by doing so, you're not forfeiting your opportunity to contribute to the decision between front runners. And so if you had a libertarian in there and they they did Clinton as their last, half of them did Trump as their last, and you had some other parties, then it would be we would get what you're saying is we would get not only could people vote for their first choice, not feel disenfranchised, but we would get more of a, a consensus candidate. Is that kind of. Exactly. And you could say the same for a libertarian or someone to the further right. I think the libertarian candidate in that race was Gary Johnson. So maybe if I was a Gary Johnson supporter, I would rank Johnson first and then Trump second. And similarly, by doing so, we could get a sense of the actual levels of support for these third party candidates. But people would still make sure the result was fair and reflecting voter preferences. And so if you're voting for a third party candidate, you could put another third party candidate second. Yeah, absolutely. All right. I just wanted to make that clear. You can anybody who's on there, you can rank them however you want. Totally. Yes. Okay. 
What are some other um, advantages of ranked choice voting or some other problems it can ameliorate? Sure. So I would say it encourages more positive campaigns. Candidates really have the incentive to win the second or third choice support of their opponent's supporters. So they have reason to play nice, stick to the issues, find common ground rather than just focus on sort of these negative, terrible attacks that we see too often. There was a 2021 analysis that found that candidates were more likely to engage with each other in ranked choice cities than in plurality cities or first past the post cities. Ranked choice voting also resulted in a more positive congressional campaign in Virginia. According to, there was a survey of Virginia GOP voters who used ranked choice in 2022. Another benefit I'd say is we can get majority winners without runoffs. With ranked choice voting, we can just have an instant runoff. Cities and states can save hundreds of thousands on holding another election and outcomes are decided when turnout is naturally the highest and most diverse. Another problem to speak on is dropout, especially for a presidential election. So what often happens is an earlier mail-in voter might cast their ballot. And by the time their state's primary day rolls around, the person they voted for dropped out. So this essentially happens. Uh, these people's votes don't get to count in a meaningful way. And this happened to 3 million Democratic voters in the 2020 presidential primary. So that's a lot of essentially wasted votes. And can you, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Can you just explain that a little bit more? What happened in that situation? Sure. So that's if I am an earlier absentee voter and I voted for my favorite candidate in the presidential primary, maybe two weeks later, that candidate drops out and my state's primary day isn't for another two weeks. So essentially, I have now cast my ballot for somebody who is no longer in the race. Mm -hmm. And that happened to three million Democratic voters in 2020. And so with ranked choice, on the other hand, if your favorite candidate drops out, your vote just gets to count towards your next choice. Uh, so pretty easy. And there were actually five states that used ranked choice in their Democratic presidential primaries in 2020. And most of these voters did get to have see their vote either count for Biden or Sanders in the end. So people can vote for who they like, but still make sure their vote is counting in the decision between front runners. There were those three million Sanders or a variety of, of candidates. Yeah. So it would be people who voted for maybe lower pollers or performers who dropped out before those voters' primary day came around. Right. Because I remember that some people were still printed on the ballot, like Senator Warren, Klobuchar, and they'd gotten out. So that's the kind of thing you're talking about. Exactly. Okay. Thank you for clarifying that. Yeah, of course. What does the research and also, I guess, the real world data tell us about ranked choice voting? Yeah, so I would say the biggest, most common finding is that voters like ranked choice voting. So, for example, 85% of Utah voters said they were satisfied with ranked choice voting after they used it. Uh, Three quarters of New York City voters said they wanted to use it again after using it for the first time in 2021. Another thing is voters really use the opportunity to rank multiple candidates. A median of 71% of voters choose to rank multiple, and that's even higher in more competitive races. The data also shows that more women and people of color run and win in ranked choice elections. So to speak to that, ranked choice voting helped elect uh, the first majority female city councils in New York City and Las Cruces, New Mexico. Ranked choice helped Minneapolis and Salt Lake City elect their first majority people of color city councils. And ranked choice also helped Alaska elect its first Alaskan Native Congresswoman. 
Another big finding, most voters actually end up supporting a winning candidate, even if it wasn't their first choice. So about 73% of voters rank a winning candidate in their top three. So that shows that we have really good voter buy-in and engagement. And then I have some upcoming research that isn't published yet. I'm happy to give a sneak peek of. Wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> We've uh, found that. Yeah. <laughs> We've uh, found that ranked choice voting uh, can increase some incentives for bipartisan legislative behavior, as demonstrated by some of the representatives uh, who are elected in Maine under it, tend to be rated some of the most bipartisan in the House. Also, ranked choice voting in primaries could help parties perform better. So my upcoming research shows that when people win their primary elections with less than 50 percent, those nominees are likely to do worse in general elections than we would expect them to. I think just because, you know, they come out of these really divisive primaries with low support from their own party. Most people in their party didn't even want them on the ballot. Whereas with ranked choice, on the other hand, gives us strong consensus nominees who are well positioned to represent their party in the general election. And because candidates want to be the backup choice of their opponent's supporters, they have incentive to find common ground and primary elections can be less divisive and more unifying. So an example of that, the Virginia GOP used ranked choice voting to nominate their 2021 gubernatorial candidate, Glenn Youngkin. He went on to win an extremely competitive general election after the Virginia GOP had not won a major statewide contest in a decade. So long story short, the research really shows that ranked choice voting is both good for voters and the candidates and the parties. Yes, that makes sense. And, you know, we were talking about like the Jill Stein, those races. If ranked choice voting had happened, then Clinton would have, Secretary Clinton would have an incentive to not alienate the Stein voters or the Johnson voters or any of them. And when it just just gets down to two of them, they're sort of go at it, right? So then I think with this sort of appealing to everybody, then that makes sense that when they do advance, they're stronger. Does that make that's yeah, you're right. It doesn't like eliminate the incentives to still be able to show where you disagree with the other uh, candidates and, you know, make your case and why you're the best one. But it does allow you to admit where there are areas you can agree and find common ground, that sort of thing. Yeah, I know a lot of people don't like change, but, you know, you mentioned I, we mentioned Ireland and I was in Ireland last year and I'm Irish American and, you know, Irish people love to chat and uh, especially when they're coming out of pubs. And I sort of acted like a journalist there. I told them I taught political science. So I chatted up everybody, including some uh, political scientists, and everybody told me they liked ranked choice voting. They said there's no problem. Um, it saves money. All the things you talked about. And there's really no problems. And I think it's 100 years there. So, you know, it's interesting. Politicians often oppose ranked choice voting, usually after they lose in ranked choice voting, but then the same people love it when they win. So I, I actually recall Mayor um, Eric Adams of New York when there was, when it was unclear who was going to advance and he was a little nervous. He said that he would blame ranked choice voting if he lost. And, you know, this is this new thing and, you know, whatever. And then after he won, he was very happy with it. So we'll talk about New York City later. But so what the detractors often say is that it's just too complicated for Americans to grasp. And, you know, they may be underestimating us and that our first past the post is just simpler. You know, opponents also argue that ranked choice voting is um, not only is it too complicated, but maybe voters um, either won't show up or there'll be some spoiled ballots. So how do you respond to these arguments? 
Yeah. So the conversations that you had in Northern Ireland are consistent with all of the polling we see here. Everywhere it's used, these polls report that voters like and understand ranked choice. And that makes sense. It's intuitive. We rank things every day. So in New York, like you said, 95% of voters said it was easy. That number was 92% in Minneapolis, 85% in Alaska. And notably, those numbers from New York and Alaska were from the first time it ever was used there. So voters are getting it right off the bat. The majority also prefer it to the old system. So, for example, 77% of the New York voters said they wanted to use it again. 56% of the Virginia GOP uh, congressional primaries who used it said they preferred ranked choice to single choice. To your question of turnout, uh, there's no evidence that ring choice depresses it. Some studies show it increases turnout while others show it has no effect. It's really a hard research question to measure because there are other things more likely to affect whether people show up or not. Like, is the race competitive? Is it an even or odd number year? But we do have some anecdotal evidence that points to it. So for example, back to New York, when they used it for the first time in 2021 for their municipal primary elections, that race saw the highest turnout it had had in 30 years. So yeah, I, I hope that addresses some of the concerns. Yes, I think, you know, it's just like uh, I have a family member who likes to eat at the same restaurant. And then when we go to a new one, they want to eat at the new one all the time. So I think it's just getting past that first election. And I just want to compliment FAIR because I think education and advocacy is really helpful so that if people are aware of it, they're more likely to accept it when when it comes. I think a lot of people um, know about it now. And so um, you had sort of already answered some of these questions about New York City. I was fascinated by the New York City race. My mother's a New Yorker, spent a lot of time there. I thought it was, I wanted to see how it played out there because it's a large city. And as we said, they used ranked choice voting for their um, mayor election for the first time in 2021. And here's just some of my impressions. I think it helped women and minority candidates. It's interesting because New York is a very blue uh, city and some of the liberal candidates did not come out, uh, did not win. Adams was, I think, less liberal. But I think also people were concerned about crime and he was in law enforcement. So I don't think we can extrapolate a lot from one election. But I do believe it led to the city's first ever majority city female city council. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Okay. And as you said, there was an increased turnout. You know, it's hard to prove, but I think our uh, ranked choice voting probably contributed to that. There was some excitement about it, right? Some buzz. Okay. So, and um, uh, also it seems, I mean, there was a lot of strategic things going on. Like I know that Andrew Yang and the other candidates sort of got together and said, you know, we don't like somebody else. So you put me second and and, you know, it's interesting. So th there was some coalition building, some strategic voting, but it's interesting. Andrew Yang lost and he is a big proponent of it. He's like, look, I lost, but I lost. He may have lost anyway, but he's he's still a big fan of it. So good for Andrew Yang. Right. And do you have anything to add to that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, well, to speak to New York, first of all, like you said, I think in the end, it was a big success. Voters in all demographic groups used rankings at high rates and contributed to the outcome. So the Eric Adams race you were talking about, which was the Democratic mayoral primary, in that one, 87% of voters ranked multiple, multiple candidates and 85% of voters expressed their preferences between the top two. Compare that to last time there was an open seat mayoral election, it was just 68% voted for one of the top two. So more people are really getting a say in who the nominee is. Um, you touched on you know, representation and turnout. 
as for um, the cross endorsement thing, that's, yeah, some coalition building that we're really excited to see. You know, it's rare uh, in current politics where we see two candidates saying, I like this other person that's running in the race. And there are things we can agree on. Uh, to the question of Andrew Yang, yeah, he's a great advocate for ranked choice voting and the growing conversation about the need for structural reform. And fortunately, he's not alone. We've seen a lot of candidates, including those who have lost under ranked choice, fully support ranked choice voting and respect the will of the voters later. Uh, and we're starting to see more support for ranked choice voting from elected officials too. Uh, there have been a few places where legislators, such as in Oregon, uh, have chose to refer ranked choice voting measures to the ballot. So definitely seeing the support not only from voters, uh, but also people that are holding legislative office. Okay, I'm going to talk about how we get these passed um, a little bit later, but I want to talk about Alaska. Yeah. Proponents of ranked choice voting, and I think you've mentioned this, argue that it we talked about how it produces consensus candidates and sort of disadvantages these far, you know, fringe candidates who only appeal to a small percentage of the vote. So Sarah Palin lost under the ranked choice voting in Alaska's congressional campaign. And, you know, I suspect this was due to her extremism. because You know, they had a Democrat, I think, for the first time or the first time in a long time. And that Democrat really worked uh, hard to reach out to everybody. And so do you have any thoughts on how it played out in Alaska? Yeah, so the results of Alaska's first experience with ranked choice are really consistent with Alaska's independent streak. So uh, in the same cycle, Alaska elected a conservative Republican governor, a moderate Republican senator, and then the moderate Democratic congresswoman you were talking about. Uh, we see bipartisan state legislatures uh, in each house, really productive, low drama legislative session this year, uh, which I'd like to think is a side effect of some of the positive incentives associated with ranked choice. So, yeah, when uh, in the particular Alaska election you were talking about, when the third place candidate Nick Bagich was eliminated, many of his voters uh, preferred Democrat Mary Peltola as their second choice, uh, who was a moderate candidate focused on local issues like pro-fishery policies. So ranked choice voting really allowed Alaskans to express their full range of nuanced preferences, even across parties, uh, which is you know something typical we, we might see in Alaska now that they're able to. Yeah, and Alaska voters are a little bit more elastic than than other states. But it's interesting because Representative Patola, she after she got elected, she kept on a lot of the Republican staffers from the previous and which is pragmatic. And I think it's what Alaskans would like. And it sort of gets past this hyperpartisan. So partisanship. So, I mean, I see that as a good thing. Right. Yeah, so, me too. <laughs> so speaking of that, I really appreciate that FAIR is um, is nonpartisan. And from what I can tell, uh, this doesn't benefit one part or the other. And there's a lot of Republicans uh, who see it uh, positively. Uh, same thing on the Democratic side. And given the hyper polarization that we're in, I'm always looking for issues that can sort of transcend this. So I, I want to talk about how ranked choice voting can become law. Some states have it, some cities have it where the states don't have it. And now some states, including Florida, have banned it. And so this may be an exception to the nonpartisanship. I'm not sure what the motivations are, but 
Can you explain this to me, please? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a good question. And to start, as you mentioned it, ranked choice voting itself is inherently nonpartisan. It's been used in more liberal cities like New York and San Francisco, but it's also been re- embraced by the Republican Party of Virginia. There are 10 cities about to use it in Utah, a pretty red state. So to speak to how it actually comes to be, the U.S. being a federation, every state and every even municipality works a little bit differently. There are places where ranked choice voting legislation can be both initiated and passed fully by the voters. So they can petition to have the question put on the ballot and then they can vote yes. This is how it worked in Maine and Alaska. In other places, any electoral change has to come from legislators themselves. So I live in Illinois, for example, where that is the case, meaning if we wanted to do it statewide here, that would have to come entirely from the state legislature initiating and passing a bill. And interestingly, Illinois actually did just pass a bill to set up a study committee. But anyways, uh, there are also uh, hybrids. So the Oregon state legislature recently voted to put a ranked choice referendum on the ballot, thereby leaving the ultimate decision to voters in November next year. And then on municipalities, some municipalities require authorization from their state to implement a change like ranked choice voting. And a lot of states, for example, Utah and Virginia, have granted that via a local options bill. There are some states like Florida that you said that have made it a little tricky in the interim. And I think that's just a function of politicians who are used to campaigning and winning under the current system and are comfortable with that status quo. But there are far more states passing legislation that makes it easier for their municipalities to use ranked choice voting than the other way around. I'm just curious. Um... California, this just popped into my head, it has ballot initiatives, and I would think that there would be some support for this. Is there any movement in California that you're aware of? So California is a very active state in terms of ranked choice voting. It's used in uh, San Francisco, Oakland, Berkeley, San Leandro. So uh, a lot of places already have the systems there. Um, And, you know, being a state that has been open to electoral reform in the past, for example, they use open nonpartisan primaries. I imagine it would be a good ground to do it in the future. Uh, I'm not aware of any formal campaign there to do it in the next few years, but I could certainly see it happening. Okay. Well, thank you for, I mean, you really are an expert on this, Rachel, because (laughs) a lot of moving parts and uh, you're familiar with all these states. And uh, so it's uh, kind of a fluid situation. So I want to talk about something that um, is a big issue in the United States. Um, Voting rights and voter suppression is It's been really um, significant because I talk a lot about democracy and Freedom House and other organizations have downgraded the U.S. democracy. And one of the reasons is voter suppression. Uh, There's many other reasons, but in the U.S., mostly, quote unquote, red states have this minority rule through gerrymandering and voter suppression. Wisconsin, for example, uh, went for Biden. It's about a 50-50 state. And yet seven of its 10 congresspersons are Republican, only three are Democrats. And were it not for gerrymandering, uh, they probably each have about five. And then this would make the um, composition of Congress different. Um, This also played out in a big way in Florida, which is why there are more Republicans in Congress now. Could any of the reforms that FAIR advocates and could rank choice voting help with some of these issues of minority rule and this rural issue and voter suppression? Yeah, so we advocate for a federal bill called the Fair Representation Act, which is a comp 
comprehensive solution that can solve problems like partisan gerrymandering and uncompetitive elections for U.S. House. It is our gold standard North Star reform. And so the people that benefit from it, like you said, typically uh, more suppressed groups like Republicans in blue states and cities, Democrats in red states and rural areas, voters and candidates of color. And basically how it works is it would create multi-member districts for House elections. So instead of having smaller districts where we each elect one representative, it would be bigger districts and we'd elect three or five and those representatives would be elected by a proportional multi-winner version of ranked choice voting. So voters still just rank the candidates in order of preference. It's pretty simple from the voter end, but parties would earn seats in proportion to their share of votes cast. So let's take Oklahoma as another example, similar gerrymandered situation to Wisconsin. Oklahoma has five representatives. But because Republicans make up the majority of each of those five single member districts, they win all of the seats, even though Democrats make up 30 percent of that electorate statewide. If we elected Oklahoma's representatives statewide proportionally, like the Fair Representation Act would do, Republicans would likely win three seats, Democrats one, we'd have a possible toss up seat. So still uh, preserve the Republican majority, but Democrats would be awarded a fair seat. We could say the same thing for racial representation. So right now with single member districts, a minority ethnic or racial group needs to make up 50% of a district to have power, to have voting power and elect a candidate of their choice. But with multi-member districts, that threshold is lower and those groups don't have to live in a majority minority district to be able to elect a candidate of their choice. So yeah, that's the ultimate goal we're working towards. Yeah, I interviewed Professor uh, Seku Franklin on the last show, and he's in Tennessee. And this is a big issue in Tennessee where people are just disenfranchised and, uh, you know, minorities are disenfranchised. Democrats are dis feel that they're disenfranchised. I, I suspect in California, Republicans feel that they're disenfranchised. And you mentioned uh, P, uh, PR, proportional representation and multi-member. This is associated with higher democracy scores. You see this in Scandinavia and Western European countries. So that's exciting. So the Fair Representation Act, where does it stand now? Does it have sponsors? Is it bipartisan? Yeah, it has a group of sponsors. It has been introduced, at least in the last Congress. Um, I cannot remember if it's been introduced in this Congress yet, uh, but it is an official bill in writing that um, does have sponsors. You know, it's interesting when I talk about various voting reform systems in my comparative politics class, and these are young students, community college students, students just love the idea of ranked choice voting. And, you know, I've never heard anyone not like it once they understand it. So do you see some of this as generational as young people embrace it? You think it might take off more? Yeah, that's consistent with what I've seen in the research. Ranked choice voting does tend to pull highest with voters under 35. Uh, an example, so New York's first use of ranked choice voting elected their youngest council member ever, and a majority of the new councilors were under 40. So I think oh. this is because young, diverse startup candidates, they don't feel like they have to wait their turn anymore, and they probably benefit from that second look they get when voters not only have to think about who they'd like to rank first, but also maybe second or third. 
we always say if young people age faster, we're going to have ranked choice voting everywhere very soon. So uh, it's used at about 100 colleges and universities for their student elections. So perhaps your students uh, can bring it to any campus elections or decisions they have soon. I'm going to bring that up. You know, I did. I don't know what we use, <laughs> uh, but, you know, I think it's I think that's promising. So I'm going to fast forward a little bit. Are there any big developments for ranked choice voting in 2023, 2024? And can you just talk about the 2024 elections and how ranked choice voting uh, might be used in the primary and general elections? Yeah, so there will be at least two statewide ballot measures in 2024. That's in Oregon and Nevada, potentially also Idaho. So if two of those are passed, we're going to double the number of states using ranked choice voting in just one year, which is pretty exciting. Several states are also likely to use ranked choice voting in their presidential primaries, um, eliminate this sort of wasted vote dropout problem. Uh, but also the Republican primary that we're seeing play out right now makes a very strong case for ranked choice. Uh, Things are playing out in a very contentious, combative way. It's leaving the party really divided ahead of this general election, uh, where, of course, anytime you're challenging an incumbent, you need the party to be as united and put together as it can. So ranked choice voting, on the other hand, could identify a consensus nominee and help the party find common ground and send a really strong candidate who is well posed to do to compete in front of the general electorate. We also are going to expect an active conversation about how ranked choice could help address the spoiler problem you talked about earlier of any third party or independent candidates in November. So the current conversation, uh, there's a third party called No Labels, and they have been sort of looking to get ballot access and raise money in different states. And this has really concerned some politicos who are worried about them playing spoiler, for example. For yes, Biden. Yes. So yeah, so ranked choice voting uh, could easily solve that problem. Uh, eliminate the spoiler effect and just make sure that we don't need to discourage third party and independent competition in order to get fair results. Yeah, I heard, I think it was Governor Sununu, who is a Republican, but he is not a Trump fan. And he was on the news the other day and he was saying, you know, I think what we need to do is have one of the candidates get together with another candidate and form a ticket now so that we can coalesce and not have all of these people divide. And that's kind of like ranked choice voting, right? Basically, he's hinting at something that can get some consensus. They're not calling it ranked choice voting, but it sounds like they would like that. And I think the Democrat, when that crowded Democratic field probably would, that some of them probably would have liked it also. That's right. Yeah, I know that Sununu a while ago announced he wasn't going to run specifically because the field was already too crowded and he didn't want to contribute to that and, you know, result in a low plurality winner becoming the nominee. So with ranked choice, don't have to worry about that just simply by entering the race, you're not going to ruin it for anybody or make it worse for your party. Uh, and you mentioned the Democrats, too. Uh, it would be ranked choice voting a good way to make sure uh, we're not sort of discouraging competition, even in the incumbents party, because right now I know there are a few candidates challenging Biden and they're being very sort of shamed for doing so within the Democratic Party, uh, even though voters might like more options on both sides, even if it is the incumbent. So with ranked choice voting, we don't have to worry about that sort of thing and be discouraging competition and that way. 
Yeah, a lot of the Sanders voters, you know, they call them Bernie bros. And a lot of them were, you know, they were young and it was their first time. And when he lost, a lot of them were just really deflated and stayed home. Like, oh, there's no difference between Clinton and Trump. It's all corporate. And, you know, they didn't really understand the Supreme Court importance of that. But so it sounds like this could have brought them into the fold more, right? So that they yeah, didn't so alienated. Okay. All right. Well, I only see positives here. <laughs> All right. So I'm just going to ask you, we're going to ra- wrap up on a positive note. It sounds like we already are, but um, where can voters go to get more information? And I understand you, can you just explain the two different arms of FAIR and what each does and how people can get involved in either? Yeah. So FAIR Vote does a few different things. Uh, we provide research and data analysis and answers to questions about ranked choice voting. We also help provide some guidance to state-level advocates who want to initiate it themselves in their local elections, uh, as well as we have some people trying to make the Fair Representation Act happen in Congress. So definitely a wide uh, spectrum of areas we touch. As far as where to find information, um, our website is a great resource. It's just fairvote.org. You'll find a list of pretty much every research and data point there is out there about ranked choice voting. You will find a list of all legislative wins and opportunities You'll find answers to all of the FAQs you might have thought of and a list of all of the places it's used. Uh, also news and analysis about all the current ongoings in politics and election reform. And so, yeah, and also information to just about what might be going on in your state and where you can get involved. So lots of stuff going on on our website, and I recommend checking it out. I'll, I'll put a link to it, and I use this as a teacher. Okay, Rachel, well, I really appreciate all this. Um so I do like to end on a positive note. Do you have anything else positive you want to add right now? Yeah, I'd just say it's an exciting time uh, to be advocating for the fastest growing nonpartisan reform in the nation. Uh, I'm excited that ranked choice voting has proved it can give better choices, better representation, more voice to voters. And I'm just uh, thrilled to have the opportunity to talk about it with you and uh, hope people listen. Well, and I appreciate having such a cheery and well-informed <laughs> guest. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Rachel. And thank you to everyone at FAIR for making this possible. Thank you. We welcome your feedback. Please follow the show on Twitter at PoliticsCons. That wraps up this podcast. Until next time, be kind to yourself and others.